Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 137, The Untouched Apollo Samples. I'm Gary Jordan. I'll be your host today. On this podcast, we bring in the experts, scientists, engineers, astronauts, all to let you know what's going on in the world of human spaceflight. The Apollo missions to the moon were truly scientifically unique. Observing the cosmos has always been from afar, and researching materials from other planets had to be done when they were quote-unquote delivered to us by way of a meteor coming through Earth's atmosphere. During Apollo, astronauts excavated the surface of the moon. They put them in uh, containers and bags, all of these samples, and they returned them here to Earth in a pristine way, something that was a first and had since not yet been repeated. So these samples that were brought back from the moon are limited, very limited. Highly sought-after samples were shared, but in very small quantities, and are highly protected. They really still are. Some of these were never opened, waiting for the right time and the right technology needed to observe them. And that time is now. Nearly 50 years after they were collected, Apollo samples were recently opened for observation. So, what was so special about these samples? And what exactly are the technologies that were so highly anticipated for nearly half a century? Coming on the podcast today are the very people who opened these samples. We're talking with Sharice Kreischer and Andrea Mosey. Sharice is a lunar curation processor and the core extrusion specialist, meaning it's her hands dissecting the sample. She's also the lead for the NASA's Apollo Next Generation Sample Analysis Initiative. Andrea has been at NASA for 44 years and is now a senior scientist specialist and the Apollo Sample Laboratory Manager. Sharice and Andrea go over more about what's so special about these moon rocks and the modern technology that we're using to study them. So here we go. Apollo samples preserved for nearly 50 years now opened with Sharice Kreischer and Andrea Mosey. Enjoy. T-minus five seconds and counting. Mark. Launch commit light circuit for the red. Here she goes. Houston, we have a podcast. Sharice and Andrea, thank you so much for coming on Houston. We have a podcast. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you. Awesome. I'm very excited to talk about these particular samples because I'm sure this has been something that if you've been in the lunar lab, you're just looking at it, just waiting. You're like, man, what would it, what is going on inside of there? And we're finally at that point. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about these particular samples that have been opened very recently. Um, but first, I want to understand a little bit about you. Sharice, we'll start with you. What is your background? How did you become to the, how did you get to the point where you're now working with Apollo samples? Okay. Well, I uh, graduated with an aerospace engineering degree from UT in Austin way back in 2000. And my first job out of college was teaching astronauts and flight controllers. Oh, wow. So really exciting. <laughs> um, and I did that for about seven years, and I started to really think about what was the next step in my career. And I really went back to my first love, which was planetary science, all the way back from when I was five years old. Mm -hmm. And so I did some research and realized that you could come at planetary science from a whole bunch of different angles, different science. You could come at it from chemistry or geology, um, physics. And so basically, I just picked my favorite science, which was geology, right. went back to school for it, and started to really dive into who are the people in planetary science, what are they doing, and discovered, uh, really rediscovered that the Apollo uh, sample collection was kept here at Johnson Space Center, which was so convenient since <laughs> I was here at Johnson Space Center. Yeah. And so while I was going to school, I, um, I started to... Uh, Google people, i.e. stock people who are working out here. And actually this job opened up. So I thought, might as well throw my, my hat in the ring um, and got an interview and was really shocked when they offered me the job. So wow. got very, very lucky. <laughs> you say shocked, but um, you know you, you mentioned when you were looking at planetary science, you're looking at the different angles and geology was the one that really was your I guess, favorite. What was it about geology versus some of the other sciences? Well, you know, it was interesting because back when I was uh, going to UT, getting my engineering degree, one of the requirements that I had was to take a natural science. So that was part of my degree requirements. And 
I just chose geology, mm. just kind of because. <laughs> it was like the one science that I didn't have to take for engineering. And I really, I really enjoyed it. And I remember uh, leaving class one day and thinking, you know, if this engineering thing doesn't work out, I can always go back to school for geology. I knew that I would really enjoy it. It and was then, the back of your mind, yeah. Yeah, amazingly, 10 years later, that was the, I went back for <laughs> geology. I had no, I really didn't, you know, really consider that uh, as a real, this is really going to happen. And then it did. So. Yeah. That's cool. I like that career path. You're you're going through, and I'm sure you know being an engineer and training flight controllers was was super exciting. But you're think you're thinking about that next step and going back to what was in the back of your mind, something you loved. That's just a great a great way to assess a career path. What do I want to do? I want to do what I love. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And you really, you know, as you're going along, you're collecting all of these dots you know, skills and knowledge and interests. And it's not until you go along your career and your life a little bit, you start to connect those dots and you start to really see how they all really do connect. But it does take a while, so. Yeah. So Andrea, how'd the dots connect for you? How'd you end up in, uh, in the Lunar Curation Facility? Totally by accident. Oh. I actually uh, majored in chemistry and math at Houston Tillerson College, now university in uh, Austin. I was a copycat sister, so I followed the path of my big sister, and she worked here at NASA. Um, I was in pre-med before that, and I was in a program with UT Austin and Houston Tillerson, and I was gonna become a doctor. After I realized how many years I would have to (laughs) study continuously, I changed my mind, (laughs) and I got my degree in chemistry and math and graduated, not knowing that shortly after that I would continue going to school, and I got my master's in physical science and geology from uh, University of Houston, Clear Lake. Hmm. I actually love sciences, always liked sciences, and when the opportunity came up to work at NASA, I thought that would be great because my sister and brother-in-law worked here. I didn't have transportation to get to work at the time, just graduating from college in 75. So I actually took the job so I would have transportation to work. <laughs> need a ride. That, yes. So, important consideration when you're finding I'm, where I'm to work. You, so <laughs> that was my, my biggest concern. So I took the job for that reason. And also knowing that I had been here at NASA during the Apollo missions. So in 1969, I was here. I was a student at Ebony Worthing High School, and they had a, a vocational office education program. So I actually worked in the building, building four with astronauts, during 69, 70, and 71 when I was in high school. Wow, and, prime um, Apollo years. Yes, it was so exciting. Yeah. So I got to see astronauts almost on a daily basis. <sighs> I mean, it was actually, it was really exciting. And so it was... It made a great impact on me. I could remember looking out of my boss's window. Um, there was no f- four south at the time. It was only building four. So looking out of that corner window at the astronauts driving into the parking lot right there in red, white, and blue Corvettes. And you know, it's like, I know they say it was a promotional thing, but for a young student in high school, it was really exciting. And so yeah. um, that started my love for NASA and the space program um, and it continued on being in that same field because that group actually was lunar missions and uh, one of our curators and some of the scientists actually came out of that group and then when I came back after graduating from college they were in the area where I am now so I've actually been in building work 31 pardon me 31 working with the moon rocks for 44 years. 44 years yes wow what what is it i guess i mean this this might be a dumb question but what what is it about it that's so interesting that makes you want to stick around and keep looking at these types of samples it's different and this is the only place in the world that you could work with look at be a part of the Apollo samples in this amount sizes capacity 
and the entire world. Yep. Wow. On a daily basis. On a daily basis. Yep. Yes. So, Andrea, if you if you were here in '69 through even through '71, I mean, the the uh, the samples that we're gonna talk about now were not even in this facility yet. They were they were gathered Correct. on. Uh, they were both on 17, right? So this is 72. Did I get that? 72. Right? December of 72. 72. Correct. So you saw them arrive and you saw them sit there. I wasn't December of 72. I wasn't here at NASA you at weren't the time. Here at NASA. I was oh, at, you, I was in college. You were in school. Mm-hmm, so okay. I was in school at the time. But okay. uh, then I came back, and they were here waiting for me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> waiting for you. <laughs> Well, let's go into it. Let's talk about some of these samples. Let's talk about the ones that we're gonna we're gonna be opening now. They have fancy numbers attached to them. Um, mm-hmm. If you're looking at the samples, seven three zero zero two and seven three zero zero one. Tell us a little bit more about these samples. Why are they numbered the way they are, and, and what are they? Well, you can tell which mission the sample was collected on by the first one or two digits. So hmm. Apollo 11 started with a 10, and then they got smart and actually named them after the missions. So starting with Apollo 12, that starts with a 12. 14 and 15 start with those digits. And then 16 and 17, they brought back roughly half the total amount of samples across all Apollo missions. And they had so many samples that they ended up having to drop the ones. So six Apollo 16 samples start with six, Apollo 17 samples start with a seven. So the ones uh, that we just opened, the one we're going to talk about today, were collected on Apollo 17. All right. Interesting numbering system. How about that? Yes. So what is it about these particular samples? Because we're talking about just opening them very recently. I mean, the first one was, I think, last year, right? And then the other one is mm-hmm. either coming up or yes. coming up. Okay. Yes. So these two samples, we've been holding on to them for 50 years. What is so special about them? Where were they collected? What do they consist of? What, what, what are we talking about here? Well, they um, back in the Apollo days, they actually had the foresight to set aside uh, certain amounts of samples because they knew in the future there were going to be new techniques, new questions, Mm. um, new developments in technology that could maybe get you more information. Um, And they knew that they didn't know everything at that time. They didn't have everything and all the the best techniques at the time to do analysis. So they purposefully set aside a a subset of the samples um, and kept them sealed until a future date at which those technologies would have been developed, those questions would have been asked, and mm-hmm. then you could go ahead and open up those samples and do the analysis, the new techniques, um, the new, uh, utilize the new technologies, technologies mm-hmm. um, to go ahead and find out even more about the samples and even more about the history of the moon. So what's good about keeping it preserved? You know, why not just open it, use the technologies you have at the time, and then when better technologies come available later, then you can start using those. But then if you've used up all your samples, then you don't mm. have anything for the t- new technology. Or if the samples may be contaminated in some way, which is what we make sure in the lunar lab, in the pristine sample lab, pristine sample vault, the samples are processed there and they're stored in the vaults. And that way they're in nitrogen-filled cabinet, a very pure type nitrogen gas. They're packaged and we only use uh, Teflon, aluminum, and stainless steel. Those are the only types of materials that are used in the lab. And we make sure that uh, we have procedures for everything. So uh, we follow procedures to the T so that we're doing everything not to contaminate the samples. We're actually protecting the samples from us. When the samples first came from the moon, there was, uh, they went into quarantine to make sure that they weren't bringing anything back that was gonna be a contaminant to human life or to Earth. And after the quarantine, we're protecting the samples from us. We don't want to expose them to our environment because then you're not uh, researching or analyzing what came from the moon. You're analyzing what possibly happened here on Earth. Oh, and you don't want to... You don't want to waste that kind of time, right? You don't want to spend a lot of time thinking about. You you want to focus on what's what what's the history of this sample? Right. What is mm-hmm. what is the story here? What is this trying to tell me? Right. Um, now, where were these um, collected? What, what what do they consist of? Are we talking about, you know, is the sample a big a big rock, or is it just like a tube of 
dirt? You know, what are we talking about? What are we? I like that tube of dirt. <laughs> <laughs> right. So uh, 73002 and 73001 is actually what's called a, uh, a core sample. Hmm. So if you can imagine, there's these two tubes. They're about roughly 30 centimeters or so in length, and they're screwed together in the middle. They're attached in the middle. So overall, you've got a tube that's about, uh, it's probably a little less than three feet long. Hmm. And so what the astronauts did is they essentially um, turned this tube vertical on the moon, and then they hammered it down into the soil as far as they could. And then once uh, it was um, all the way down, they pulled it back up and brought up with it, of course, um, an entire tube full of lunar soil. Perfectly preserved in the layers that they were on the moon. Right. Interesting. Exactly. And um, so what they did is on the moon, they separated the two tubes. So the the 73002 was the upper tube. So that goes from the surface uh, down uh, to about, I think it was 23 centimeters originally. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then 73001 is the lower part of that tube. Uh, which consists of I forget what the what the depth was, but um, seven three zero zero two, which was the lower one, they went ahead and put into a special vacuum sealed container on the moon, so it was sealed vacuum sealed on the moon, um, and then seven three zero zero one, they went ahead and just packaged up the way that they just normally did it and transported it back. Hmm. So um, the one that we went ahead and opened in November of this past year is seven three zero zero one, that upper that upper part of the drive tube. Okay, okay. Now, wait, yeah, was the 73001 that was, the, the 002 was the one that was vacuum sealed? or 001 was vacuum sealed. 002 was not vacuum sealed, although it was sealed on the moon. Got it. So they didn't put it into a special vacuum sealed container, but they did put it into a bag, I believe. Yeah, so we open, okay, so we have opened the two. We have the non-vacuum sealed one open right uh, right now, and we're looking forward to opening that one that was vacuum sealed on the moon. Okay. And the reason that this this particular uh, sample was so special was that it was collected in an area where there was a lot of landslide material. So Mm. the hope was they would get some material from the highlands in that landslide material, as well as some volcanic information, some volcanic material as well. Um, so there was some localized uh, volcanism, uh, so that's that was one of the one of the goals of this particular uh, sample at the time that they collected it. That's what's geologically interesting about this. Not only are you getting the layers, you're getting the story of the formation of the moon, but there's a lot of geological activity. There's a story, some stories there that you yes. want to learn about. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. Very exciting time yes. then. Yes. All right, so let's talk about um, the the effort that it's taken to. You know, we, we've like we've said, these are these are samples that have preserved for forty seven years. If you go back to nineteen seventy two, so there's this uh, there's this I think maybe program or or initiative, whatever you want to call it, A N G S A ANGSA is that yes. it? ANGSA mm-hmm. Apollo Next, Next Generation, Generation Sample, Sample Analysis. Yes. So what is this? What is this effort? Well. We went through a tedious process of uh, pulling out the samples to uh, and all the tools and everything that we did for the last core. The last core was processed uh, about 25 years ago. And so after saving this particular core for the next generation of samples, uh, I'm just going to read this little. <laughs> <laughs> Make sure you say it right. Yeah. Yes. The goal of the ANSA program is to maximize the science derived from samples returned by the Apollo program. And so this is the first uh, sample that the ANGSA program is actually um, has selected to do. It's mm-hmm. done by committee, mm-hmm. and uh, we have no input in that particular thing. The decisions were made, and what we actually do is dissect the sample, and that's what it is called core extrusion and dissection of the sample. Mm -hmm. And there's a tedious process of doing this. I think it takes 
probably about six months to dissect that, the core. I very close. Think about six months total to, oh. to totally dissect the core. So that's core your process. expertise. You're you're processing the sample. Yes. You want to make sure that whatever you deliver to the researchers who have thought very carefully about this is what I want to look at. Mm -hmm. Your job is to make sure that that's preserved and then that they're getting what they want. Yes. Okay. Yeah, and then as part of there are some other samples as well um, that we have not even started the process of uh, opening or dissecting. There were uh, sam frozen samples, mm -hmm. so there have mm -hmm. been samples that have been kept in uh, a freezer since they were returned from the moon. We also have samples some kept in helium, in helium, helium rather than mm -hmm. nitrogen, which is what the rest of the 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 collection is, is kept And so in. those also under that this same program. Mm -hmm. ANCSA program, yeah. ANCSA program, yes. Mm -hmm. And um, there would be a determination made of what group of scientists actually get these samples and uh, they have to put in their proposals of justifying what they're looking for, which is kind of the same process they do for lunar samples. Mm. You just can't say I want a lunar sample or a Apollo sample and you're given it. You have to put in a, a request uh, justification showing what you assume you will find, <laughs> find doing your analysis and yeah. uh, it's either proved, table, or denied. And so uh, this committee will allocate samples to uh, their team, whoever put in uh, their analysis, request for analysis, mm -hmm. and either approved or denied. And some of the requests will not only be for this particular sample, some will be also for lunar other lunar samples uh, that they may want to analyze using some same uh, some of the different techniques as well. Yeah, different because there's the, all these new technologies that might absolutely point towards something mm -hmm. a little bit better mm -hmm. or a little. A different something we haven't done before Andrea mm -hmm. I think you've probably seen this probably more than most is the technologies that even are used for even your job just the the core ex, um, extrusion and analyzing and preparing samples how the technology has progressed over time not for the core extrusion not for core Basically, extrusion. Okay. Uh, we actually use the same tools and we had to go oh, out and dig up and search <laughs> yeah. out and find what we needed and that she's was not kidding. We did some digging. <laughs> we we went to these, you know, old warehouses. It was kind of like the warehouse in uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, where you've got just <laughs> these the piles, piles <laughs> you know, and you're going through drawers and you're opening up boxes and you're you're pulling out, you know, dusty things that people, you know, just shoved, you know, under a desk somewhere, uh, you know, and trying to identify all of these pieces yeah. that you might be missing. And and in my case, I wasn't familiar with this equipment at all, you oh. know, because last time it was used was... I had actually seen all of it because I was assisting the last processor who did the court 25 years ago. So I would be the next person to open the next core at that particular time. Mm. But when this opportunity came up and I was asked who was going to open the next core, I quickly said, Sharice. <laughs> <laughs> she passed the buck. <laughs> but you, did you, did you um, is there core opening or, or core extrusion work in your field of geology and some of the stuff you've studied in school and you, that you can transfer over to this? I'm sure there was at <laughs> some <laughs> point or I would have encountered it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but um, when I was going to school, I was also working full time. So I wasn't mm. out in the field a lot. Um, I knew in theory there were core samples out there. Mm -hmm. I was actually watching a uh, some sort of um, science television show. I don't even remember what it was. It might have been Nova. And they were going out into a lake and they were taking a core sample of the lake bottom. And they just went out there with this tube and they just hit it and stomped it into the bottom of the lake and then pulled it out. And then they and extruded they it in the field. They just wrapped it in, in, in plastic wrap and brought it back to the lab. And I was like, that is so not what I had to go Absolutely. through. Absolutely. That is so much easier. Yeah. Y'all have no idea how easy you have it <laughs> you know try doing that in a glove box you know yeah when you're five foot nothing and you know your reach is limited and yeah it was it was uh yeah it was quite uh, quite the challenge 
wow. getting all this stuff together and learning how it all worked together and then doing it in a box and mm-hmm. in an enclosed box with limited uh, limited mobility so oh and all of the material and um, touching restrictions on the sample itself yes so so we're gonna put you in this space where it's super hard to work with it in the first place and oh by the way you can only you touch it in certain ways in certain places and yeah with the tools you yeah. can't touch it with your hands you which can is only... the same with the Apollo samples right. you cannot touch this Apollo samples with your hands you can only touch them with tools or special gloves and so that's a procedure. Yeah. <laughs> Makes you want to get a scuba certification and go to the bottom of the ocean. Maybe that'll be a little bit easier for yeah, you. Maybe. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Well, yeah. yeah. Stick with the Apollo samples. Yeah, I think so. Well, tell me, tell me about the, uh, let, let's go through the process of, of working with these samples. But starting with this sample that we recently opened, mm-hmm. um, getting to that moment, I'm sure, was it an emotional moment for everyone to get out oh. this old sample that's almost 50 years old and say, all right, here we go. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So we we had started the process about 18 months before we opened it. And mm. so that was when we were digging through the warehouses and all the storage mm-hmm. facilities and mm. getting all this stuff together. So we had 18 months of preparation um, and anticipation and planning and talking and mm-hmm. and doing. And we did several practice runs ahead of time. So we, we had all the equipment out on the tabletop without using a glove box and just practiced putting it all together, practiced extruding the core, making sure that we understood how everything worked together, um, trying to anticipate any problems we have would have encountered. And then we repeated all of that in a mock glove box where some we had a, a team that actually built us a glove box that was the same size and dimensions of the actual core cabinet, um, but not in a clean room. So we didn't have to worry about the clean room stuff. We didn't have to worry about the samples and all of that. And so we did all of that huh. that we did on the tabletop. We did then in the glove box, the mock glove box, just to get a feel for what it would be like in the in the glove box. And then we used a lunar simulant. So we actually cr- yes. created and mixed together these different materials, the di- different sand, different grain sizes, um, and extruded that to get a feel for what the actual extrusion would be like in the dissection um, so we could practice that. And then we did that several times. Yes, yes, we did that several times. <laughs> you're basically some. becoming a, a process like an expert. You yes. get yes. the techniques down. You you're limiting what is unpredictable. Uh, you're trying to think about what you know. This is exactly what are, to to a certain extent. This is exactly what I'm going to expect whenever I actually yes. open this yes. thing. Mm-hmm. And these are the techniques I'm going to use. And yes. try to anticipate what was done in the future and what mm-hmm. we needed to change right. for. Yeah, the present because a few things changed. We did yeah. change some, made some modifications. But we did. Yeah. We did. We decided to put everything together outside of the blo- the box that we could ahead of time, hmm. um, instead of trying to handle these tiny little screws <laughs> inside of a glove box with your hands in the gloves. Really and tedious. Yes. <laughs> so, um, but then when we got to the moment, I mean that was. Ooh, yes. that was, that was, yeah, that was a, you know, got a little warm there, <laughs> got a little sweaty. Yeah, um, that was, uh, that was incredible. And to, you know, you've, you've got, I've got the core in front of me. And the first thing that you have to do is you have to take off. Uh, it's, it's capped on both ends. So mm. you have to take off one end and then you pivot the core tube around and then you take off the other end. This is all in the glove box in that the you're glove doing box. this. Yes. And it's right. your hands. It's my hands and it's, it's facing me and nobody else can see what's going on. And then to actually take off that cap. Yes. That cap <laughs> that the last person who handled it was Gene, Gene Cernan, Cernan. Yes. on the moon in 1972. <laughs> nobody else had touched it. That was my moment. That was that was the moment I had to stop and do a little heavy, you know, deep breathing. I was documenting everything, and I would type, Sharice is having a moment. <laughs> yeah. I think I stopped. I said, wait, I'm having a moment. And, that's, and she did. She wrote that down on our documentation. Sharice wow. is having a moment. <laughs> wow. Yes. So, yes. yeah, that was very exciting. I can only imagine. Very, um, you know, who, who gets to have that? 
you know just you just yes. me it sounds just like me. and without an audience either you're you're standing by documenting andrea but it sounds like there's there's not i'm imagining like a theater like you're doing this in a theater it's not like that it's no just, we oh, no. had four people in the lab <laughs> Um, yeah. the, we had uh, Andrea and myself, and then we had our two lunar curators. We had uh, Dr. Ryan Ziegler and Dr. Juliana Gross were in there. Um, and then we had uh, a few of the science team members um, and a few of the other curators who were actually in our visitor viewing area, which is outside of the lab, looking in and documenting um, from the outside what was going on. And oh, we did have um, the NASA, NASA photographer there. Yes. So he, he was videotaping as well as um, taking photographs during that moment. All right. Um, but yeah, we did not, we didn't have a, a, a huge amount of people there. We didn't want to be distracted because this was such, I mean, we get Correct. one shot at this. Yes. That was it. And so we didn't want to have a huge audience there distracting us while we were doing, we were doing our work. That's important work, mm -hmm. absolutely. Right. Well, tell me about you. So you opened up the cap, and so what are you thinking about to actually work with this sample, based on I guess what the researchers have asked for? Is it are you chipping off little little pieces of it? What like how how does it work to actually you know once you're opened it now processing it? Okay, so um, imagine you've got this you've got this tube sitting on its side, and the way that we uh, extracted it was basically we pushed from one end. We pushed the soil out through the tube into uh, a tabletop, what we called a receptacle. Mm. Um, and that receptacle is made up of aluminum plates, level plates, thin plates, um, and then uh, a quartz top that was sitting on top. It, it was just a, basically a glass top. So you can see the entire core, it's vertical underneath that glass inside of this tabletop receptacle. And once we remove the, um, the glass top, now you have a, I'd say about 20% of the core that's, that's exposed above the tabletop, this tabletop receptacle. Mm. Um, and so what we do is we start from the top of the core, which is now sitting on its side, and we scoop in five millimeters segments all along the length of the core. And so you can imagine it's very tedious. Yes. Um, it's very slow going. Anytime you encounter anything of interest, whether it be a really interesting clast, which is a fancy geologic term for a piece of rock, <laughs> <laughs> you stop, you document it, and by documentation we mean describe it in words as well as with photographs. Um, from different angles, you you say where you got it from, you say uh, what orientation it was, because we do keep orientations of the rock, so we know how it was exactly sitting when we encountered it, um, you, you know, and then you can remove it and keep on going. But that whole process, I mean, you can imagine why it does take six months, because when you get to the bottom of the core, then you go back to that tabletop receptacle and you remove several plates on each side. So mm -hmm. now you have a small a small part of the core sticking up above the tabletop again, and you repeat that whole process starting from the top, moving to the bottom wow. in five millimeter. Uh, that's such an appreciation for your focus and discipline mm -hmm. for that because mm -hmm. that's that's very precise cuts. Um, but not only that, you're you're focusing on on the physical aspect of processing this and making sure that the that it's being cut in a very precise, very measured way. But you have to have your geologically trained eye, because not everyone can just look at something and be like, "That's a very interesting piece of rock." Only right. only a trained eye can look at that. So you have to think about that. You have to think about the physical aspect of that, and then stretch that over six. It was you, just you, for six months. Uh, we're not we're done. We're not done. We're not done. <laughs> You're still going. Yes, yes. yes. <laughs> so we are actually completing the the first pass dissection this week. So that very top. 20-ish percent, 25 percent. We're getting ready to, we're going to finish that up this week, and that'll be the first pass. So, <laughs> and we have two more passes to do. Crack your fingers. So, yeah, so we're not, we're not done, but yes, it does, it takes a lot of attention to de detail. Mm -hmm. It takes a lot of patience. And you can't switch back and forth. Right. I, I'm working in the cabinet with her doing certain things, but mm -hmm. she's the specialist for dissecting the core. When she's dissecting, if she's saying that the sample is loose or mm -hmm. if I'm flip, flopping back with her, then what's loose to her may not be 
the same uh, consistency with me. So you can't flip flop back and forth on mm -hmm. dissecting. So she is the only one who is actually doing the dissection of the core. For the extrusion, which was the part of pushing the sample out into the apparatus, uh, we Cherie started off with that and I ended up yeah. with the last part. We but get a little fatigued. Yeah, yeah, of doing it. Because you have to do it so slow? Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. so the yes. process. So, And for whatever she needs in the cabinet, you're in the cabinet working with her, but you're handing her tools or containers or packaging class or doing whatever needs to be done, but she is the only one that's actually doing the dissection of the core. Whew. Yes. I cannot believe after yes. all that time you're still 20% done. Yeah. Like that's just, that's <laughs> crazy. I mean, just, uh, but it's, I, I appreciate your dedication because what you're doing is your job is to be that precise, be that mm -hmm. detailed, document everything. Right. So when you're handing it to a researcher, they have the best information, the cleanest sample, yes. the, most, the best prepared yes. sample. That's your job. Mm -hmm. Your job is to do that for them. Yes. Yes. Wow. So they can trust their analysis and they can trust the results. Yeah. So do you have a certain mindset that you have coming into work every day, knowing that, okay, today's, I'm gonna have to, you know, I have to be focused, I have to be disciplined, you know, like, like I wouldn't drink coffee. I'd be, all, I'd, be all, I'd be all jittery from the caffeine, like, yeah. I have to have my coffee. I, have to, I am not going into the lab until I finish my coffee. So you're the opposite, okay, yeah. No, but you're right, you're yeah. right, so we, um, we actually have a routine now that we've yes. we've pretty much set where we we go into the lab for about two hours in the morning and then we take a long lunch break and then we go in for two hours in the afternoon. Mm -hmm. um, personally, I found that that's ideal for the way that I work. I can maintain my focus for about two hours. After about two hours, I'm starting to get hungry. I'm starting to get less focused, and we don't want to rush this process. So we yeah. we work steadily. We take breaks when we need to. Sometimes that does involve we choose not to go into the lab one day. Maybe um, we're tired or there's something else that might be distracting us. Yes. Um, so we choose not to go into the lab. So really we, we try as best as possible to protect the integrity of our work and our work focus. Yeah. So, because uh, like we said earlier, we get one shot at this and that's it. Yeah, so. you can't mess up. You so have to be- very well together. Yes. You know, it's, it's a great process. Yes. We've got a great team. Yes. Good. Yeah. Yeah, you need that. You mm -hmm. need that. And I and I appreciate that attention to discipline and knowing like if you if you don't have the right mindset going into this, that is potentially a compromised sample. Yes. So so you're mm -hmm. not going to risk that. Right. You're right. going to you're going to take the time and make sure that you are ready. Um, because you you are the person. You are Absolutely. the person that's that's yes. cutting that. So it has to be you. You have to be in the perfect like physical mental mindset to do yep. that hence the coffee hence the coffee <laughs> <laughs> well tell me about the the um the lunar uh curation facility andre you've worked there for you said f you at uh, nasa total 44, 44 years 44 years on the um, science and engineering contracts several science and engineering contracts at nasa so okay so tell me about i mean the, the reason why they were saying, and we keep using this phrase, Apollo sample, is mm -hmm. because the samples, the lunar samples we have in this facility are from the Apollo program. Yes. And that's it. 1969 to 1972, six missions landed on the moon, bringing back 842 pounds of rocks, pebbles, and soil. Mm -hmm. And they are at Johnson Space Center in our vault worked on in our curatorial facility. We have a pristine sample lab and vault. We have a return sample lab and vault. The samples are worked on in nitrogen-filled cabinets mm -hmm. uh, by mission. We don't mix missions. The samples are never exposed to the lab without being packaged, and they are packaged in Teflon. Um, there's a procedure, like I said, for everything that we do. We transfer the samples from our vault, from specific cabinets. The samples are stored in trays, but also in nitrogen cabinets. They are sealed trays because we have inventoried all the samples that are in the vault. Um, we have to keep records of everything. Mm -hmm. So we have a database with all the sample numbers, sample weights, sample containers. So if you're looking for anything, you know exactly where to go uh, to locate those samples. Um, 
if a sample was allocated to a PI, a principal investigator, and they have worked on that sample when they return them to us because they don't get the samples to keep their still property of the government. They come back to us, they send the history of what they have actually done to the samples so that we in turn could allocate it to another PI if needed. Mm-hmm. If they know that what you did is not harmful for their analysis, otherwise the request may be made for a pristine sample, which is one that has not been sent out to anyone else. And if approved for that, we go into the vault, as I was saying, transfer it to the lab, to the specific cabinet, permission, weigh the sample. The first thing you do is weigh the sample to make sure it's the weight that is in our database or within balance tolerance. You take pictures, you document it the same way we have to document the core because the astronauts uh, took pictures of the samples on the moon, gave them orientation. We have little orientation cues, north, south, east, west, top and bottom. Mm. We take pictures of the sample. If you break the sample, if you flip the sample, you flip the cube because if you look at our documentation, you could go back and tell where the center of a sample uh, came from or uh, the middle of a rock if you've broken it up into hundreds of pieces because you have the documentation to put that back together. And that's very important for the researchers. Mm -hmm. It's very important for the researchers. They want to know how the sample was sitting on the moon, uh, where it came from, uh, for the different type of analysis that they may be um, doing. So we take extra care in handling the samples and making sure that uh, no contamination mm-hmm. is going to happen. No contamination, that you're tracking every, every part every, about yes. it, which direction it's facing on the moon. I wouldn't Everything. have thought about that. Yes. Um, but w- I think what's what's most interesting is you're doing all of this for a very finite number of samples. Yes. It is mm-hmm. it, it's just from the Apollo missions. Yes. And I'm sure everybody wants them i'm sure a lot of researchers want everybody their hands wants yeah yes. right <laughs> they want to analyze and so you have to when you're processing a lot of these parts you're giving out maybe just small fractions little chips that's exactly right you're we not getting whole rocks at a time no yeah, yeah. very average small. between half a gram and a gram yeah usually mm-hmm. per uh per allocation right and there's a lot that there's a lot to learn, but you you know you're talking about just the Apollo landing sites. You're talking about the geology of those sites. You know we did have Dr. Harrison Schmidt on Apollo 17, trained geologist with mm-hmm. that eye that said this is a very interesting part, and he yes. dug. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I don't know if he told Cernan like go there or how the direction was to get this particular sample where they were drilling, but to have that trained eye, Sharice, uh, I'm really interested to hear thinking about the future mm-hmm. from your perspective because thinking about this, we have finite number of samples, thinking about Artemis and mm-hmm. what the potential is there to look at new areas of the moon and, and a- answer new questions. Um, what are you looking forward to most from your perspective, knowing what we have in our, I guess, database of Apollo samples and just the fu- what the future holds for what's to come? I'm really, really interested in seeing the a comparison between what has been learned from the Apollo samples versus what they're going to learn from the Artemis samples. Hmm. So they're going to go to to new collection sites. They're going to get um, samples from. Uh, I think they're looking at South Pole. Aiken South Basin. Pole. Yes. Mm-hmm. So permanently shadowed reason regions. So um, rocks that have been cold and preserved for billions, billions of years. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm really, really excited to learn uh, what they learn from those particular samples and then compare it to what we've learned from the Apollo samples so far and what we know so far from just this one collection. (laughs) So, I mean, yeah, it just, (laughs) (laughs) That's what's really going through your mind is is the possibilities, you know, the questions that we can't, can't answer you know maybe there's something there's something very very interesting about being in a permanently shadowed region yes that this might be able to answer that maybe another part of the moon can't right one of the things is when you're talking about these kinds of cold temperatures you're talking about the volatiles the things that the the um like ices yes yeah. that would have evaporated in 
uh, direct sunlight. Um, so those haven't maybe have it a chance to escape yet. So mm. what can you learn about those kind of uh, those gases that uh, might not be present in the Apollo samples? Uh, so that's that's going to be really exciting because I yes. think that's going to be answering a lot of questions from the very early solar solar system. Because there was a time when we were doing tours in the lab, we would say, there's no water on the moon. And now, in the same context, we don't say there's no water on the moon. There's water ice. There's yeah. evidence of water ice. or, But mm -hmm. so that's been a change. And that's because of the Apollo samples, the mm -hmm. research that was done on the Apollo samples. So we need to go further and find out more. That's why exploration is so important. Now, what is the what is the lunar curations facility's role in this? Are you thinking about, um, you know, what happens when the Artemis samples come back, how to store them? Are you thinking about what tools and, and ways to preserve some of these samples collected from permanently shadowed regions? How involved are you at this time? Go ahead. Actually, our facility has space for more samples. We've been waiting for more samples for a <laughs> long time. That's exciting, though. We have the so, space. Come on. We, we have space. Yeah. So we're ready. I, I think the tools that we have, we, there will be some modifications of things, but what we use actually is probably good for the samples that are returned. I mean, uh, speaking of cold curation in other areas, they will have to do some design and, and some other things that they possibly will do there. But... We have the facility, we have, well, we have space for more samples, and uh, some modifications will need to be made, but we're ready. Yeah, just for an <laughs> example, um, one of the tools that we use the most is a hammer and a chisel, because we are so 21st century in our lab. Okay. But it's really hard to improve on that, just that very basic tool, so... Mm. Um, so that's pretty much where we're going to start. Tweezers, yeah. <laughs> scoop, yeah. Tweezers, so, hammer and chisel. Yeah, yeah. yeah. look at this new generation right mm -hmm. there. Yeah. No, but yeah. if you, I mean, if you just have the right training, you you have the 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 need is met. Right. The need is met. You right. you can you can work with yeah. that. Yeah. That's very exciting. You know, it's so it's so it's fascinating to hear the story about these unopened samples and just there's new ways to analyze even Apollo samples, but then hearing that there is this next step that they were thinking about mm -hmm. Artemis and mm -hmm. we're excited about new questions. Just a wonderful, wonderful thing. And one thing we're already doing is CT scanning the samples yes. because mm. as we pull out these clasps out of the core, we package them and send them to our CT lab, which years ago we did not have. Uh, samples were x-rayed. Yes. And so yes, with that's technology, advanced. that's an advancement in technology. So these are going straight to... Uh, our CT lab and they're scanning them and the scans are awesome. Oh, they're so they're so they're like works of art. It's just oh. really beautiful. What, what you are they see. showing? So they're showing. Uh, we're getting all sorts of different. We you can actually tell what type of rock the clast is just by CT scanning it. So you can actually look inside this tiny little clast and you can see the different types of mineral grains that are that make up the rock. So you can tell if this tiny little class that's coated in dust, <laughs> that you can't really tell what color it is, let alone what might be in it just from looking at it. You can tell if it's a basalt. You can tell if it's an anorthosite, which is a type of plagioclase. Um, <clears throat> yeah, you can tell if it's a, a, if it's a piece of melt like glass melt, mm -hmm. um, just from these scans of looking inside of it. Um, so it's super exciting, super exciting. And that is not something that they had back in 1972. Correct. They, they oh. x-rayed the core when it came back. Um, but before we actually extruded it, we, we had it CT scanned so we could anticipate what we were gonna find inside of this, inside of this sample. And when you're looking at all of these different minerals and what you're thinking about is the story that that's that that tells yes. what happened to yes. this particular yes. region what happened to the moon right where did this uh because one of the one of the interesting things we've already know we already saw from just scanning these different these different particles is that they didn't come from the same rock 
they didn't, so we might have two different basalts, but right. they came from a different rock yes. altogether. <laughs> so, but they ended up in this one sample. How did that happen? Hmm. Was it maybe the landslide? Was it a Our nearby impacts. impact? <laughs> you know, what happened to these, inside of these particular samples? What's the history of these two different basalts? So, I mean, there's just, there's even more and more questions yes. coming up yeah. as we, as we continue so to dissect exciting. these things. But so. it's definitely not cheese, right? No, it's not okay. cheese. I'm no sorry cheese. To yeah, <laughs> can rule that one out. Yeah. <laughs> well, Sharice and Andrea, this was such a fun conversation um, about just this incredible moment of opening up this perfectly preserved um, sample and what we have to look forward to and the delicate process of working with that. Just a fascinating conversation. Thank you both for coming on the podcast today. Thank you Thank for you. having us. And would like to also add that Sharice is such an awesome person uh, <laughs> and doing a magnificent, magnificent job doing this. So well, thank you very much. Yes. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you, you Sharice. Without the whole team, because the whole team was involved. So. And thank you, Andrea. Thank you. You're right there beside her. <laughs> thank you. Hey, thanks for sticking around. Really great conversation we had today with Sharice and Andrea. Really good to hear the emotions of uh, what it took to actually open that sample, leading all the work that led up to that moment. A really fascinating discussion we had today. If you like this podcast, we have a lot more on Houston. We have a podcast. You can find us at nasa.gov slash podcasts, along with uh, the many other podcasts that are all throughout NASA's agency. You can check them all out uh, on that page. If you want to talk to us, we are on NASA Johnson's Space Center pages of Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Use the hashtag AskNASA on your favorite platform to submit an idea for the show. Just make sure to mention it's for Houston. We have a podcast. This episode was recorded on February 18th, 2020. Thanks to Alex Perryman, Pat Ryan, Norma Ran, Belinda Polito, Jennifer Hernandez, Kelly Humphreys, and Noah Michelson. Thanks again to Sharice Kreischer and Andrea Mosey for taking the time to come on the show. Give us a rating and feedback on whatever platform you're listening to us on and tell us how we did. We'll be back next week.